0: welcome to thriving with mental illness a podcast with real talk an open and honest conversation about issues surrounding mental health i'm mikhail buck author public speaker and suicide survivor who's lived with mental illness for over 20 years and with me is my guy adam hey guys today we also have dr joel Beckstead with us he's a clinical psychologist that uh, i was introduced to A few years back, I heard you speak for the first time, and you were so authentic and so real, you immediately became one of my favorite people ever that I've heard speak. And I respect you tremendously, so we're super excited to have you
1: today.
2: Thank you. It's
1: great to be here. All right. So we know Joel. Well, should we call you Joel, Dr. Bexley? We're going to call him Joel, Joel, just because, you know, we talked last week about. the importance of having a relationship with a psychologist
0: i just want to at our house both the kids see him and your name at our house is my best friend joel mm-hmm. it's not
1: just joel it's not <laughs> dr beckstead it's always my best friend joel says good, so on uh, last week we talked about finding a good psychologist and mikhail talked about some horror stories that she had with not so good ones and so we were talking about what you look for and one of those is Just somebody that you connect with, you know, at first. I mean, they have to be smart. They have to know. They have to have tools. But the basic foundation has got to be somebody that you connect with on a personal level. So,
2: Yeah, I would agree with that, Adam, like 100%. I tell my clients or patients whenever they come in to see me that the most important thing is that we have to develop a therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. And that therapeutic relationship isn't really forming in the first couple of sessions I tell them that it's that it won't hurt my feelings, and I absolutely encourage them to go find somebody else that they feel like they can connect with. Mm-hmm. A mental health therapist is more than just somebody who knows a lot of interesting information or can explain things about depression or anxiety or other mental health topics. He's really somebody that, that uh, you have to have that close uh, relationship with to be able to talk about things that are really important so that therapeutic connection or that therapeutic bond is critical.
1: Yeah, and we talk about the importance of having a a psychologist on your team of, of people to, to have success and Mikkel a big advocate for that. And so.
0: Well, I just think it's so important that they have the knowledge and the experience and like y- you've got your doctorate degree. Maybe you can give us a minute to, to tell us some of your experience because you need someone with as much knowledge as possible in order to help you.
2: Yeah, I, I grew up in, uh, in Meridian, Idaho. Uh, lived there for about 19 years and then I went away to school at Brigham Young University. I would say for the most part, my life up to that point was pretty sheltered. Um, And consequently, I I think in some respects, um, I probably struggled just a little bit as a psychologist early on because I hadn't had quite a lot of life experiences. Shortly after graduating college uh, with my degree in psychology, um, my first employer was the United States Army. And when I joined the Army, I joined in June of 2001. And my first duty station was Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And shortly after June of 2001, I was in the hospital at Walter Reed Army Medical Center when 9-11 happened. And that really changed me and I think made me a much better psychologist, not only because of my experiences in the military, but also having gone through that experience with 9-11, working with incredible men and women and their families uh, in uniform, uh, but also really kind of getting out of my comfort zone and experiencing things that I hadn't experienced before. and I felt like that was a really critical part of me developing into a better psychologist. I was in the Army for about four years and then I left and and I've been doing private practice now for about the last 16 years. And that private practice has occurred in California, and we've lived in Maryland, um, Arizona twice now, and even a little bit in Hawaii.
1: Wow. Well, we are certainly glad to have you. You have a lot more experience than we do. You know, we talk once a week about our thoughts and experiences which is valuable but it it is nice to have somebody who has more than just a sample size of of one or three yeah (laughs) or whatever so um but in your experience talk about the the importance of connection one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is to let people open up and connect and realize they're not alone Mm -hmm. but i know that's something that you've uh, talk to to groups about you've talked to our kids about
0: well and also the importance of of being open about it i mean it's amazing to me how many people have reached out to me and said this is the first time i've ever felt like mental illness is not something that's shameful yeah. which i'm so glad they feel like that i i wish that they hadn't felt like that for so many years because it it absolutely isn't
2: yeah no you're you're both 100% correct you know i think my journey with really understanding what it means to be connected probably started all about five or six years ago. I was at a conference um, on the East Coast and I was attending there as part of my work and like most conferences I don't think I was really super invested necessarily in being there but the Surgeon General of the United States was speaking and I thought you know what it might be interesting just to pop in and listen to him speak. i would never met the, a Surgeon General before and so that seemed to be somewhat interesting and I, I walked in and he started off his presentation by asking a question that really has dramatically changed my life. He said, what's the number one healthcare crisis facing the United States today? Now this Surgeon General, um, he had just submitted a, an extensive review of the addiction crisis facing the United States and had submitted that for publication. So I was pretty confident that he was going to mention addiction. As that number one healthcare crisis facing the United States, but what he said surprised me. When he asked that question, he said, "It's connection. That that the in that with the lack of connection, there is always pain and suffering." And that's when he then introduced me to a researcher out of the University of Houston in Texas named Brené Brown, mm-hmm. and that started my journey on really trying to understand what it really means to be connected. A couple of things that were mentioned in that conference that I hadn't really anticipated thinking about. He brought up the fact that in, when there is lack of connection, it's as dangerous to the human body as smoking 25 cigarettes a day. Mm. Um, he mentioned that uh, connection creates uh, higher rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, in fact, every single medical condition that we wouldn't necessarily want to struggle with is either exacerbated or in some cases caused by feeling lack of connection. He talked about the role that it played in mental health, and I think intuitively I knew that, but having somebody talk about how connection is related to higher rates of suicide and addiction and higher rates of depression and anxiety and all kinds of other struggles that we as human beings deal with just really fascinated me. And so when I left that conference, I decided I've really got to try to understand what it means to be connected.
1: So, do you think people that experience mental illness have a harder time with connections or about the same as the average, you know, you know person? Uh, what do you think the impact is uh, with mental illness and the and being connected with other people?
2: Well, one of the things that we work on in therapy right in the beginning is really understanding what it means uh, to be connected. Dr. Brown's research suggests that before you can really connect with other people, you first have to be able to love yourself. And that can be really very difficult. Oftentimes we live in an environment that tends to be a fitting in environment in which our self-worth is often tied up in the outcomes that seemingly define us. So for example, Dr. Brown talks about how, for women, the n- number one way that women try to fit in is with their bodies. That if you're somehow between five foot six and 5'10, 115 to 125 pounds and your body looks a certain way, then you have obtained that status of being beautiful. For men, we tend to try to fit in by competing and comparing. So. For example if i was a teacher the question for the world of men would be why aren't you the principal or if you were a nurse why aren't you a doctor or in any field that you're in why aren't you moving up the corporate ladder because that seems to be the way that we connect and so certainly all around us are these fitting in cultures and those fitting in cultures are also present with mental illness as well. Mm -hmm. Mental illness is oftentimes seen as some sort of weakness. It's seen as something that's a challenge. Oftentimes the way we talk about it is overcoming mental illness as if the person has something that makes them less than. And part of learning to love yourself is not only um, accepting that mental illness is a part of your life, but not seeing that necessarily as a weakness. Mm -hmm. It's Seeing it as something that in many respects can be an absolute strength. And that was something that as I started to really learn about what it means to connect, that I really started to understand that what most often keeps us from thriving with mental illness is the emotion of shame. Mm -hmm. That feeling that somehow or another we're less than or not enough or that we don't quite fit in into the society or the culture in which we're a part
1: of
0: I think it's interesting you bringing up, you know, it can be the very thing that that makes you feel connected the most. I know, like, when I first started to be open more, and especially when I first published my book, that was a a scary step. Mm -hmm. It was so scary, but I knew it was the right thing to do, but yet... I was so unsure how it was going to be received. I mean, This is a lot of information to put out for the general public. This is all of my deepest, darkest secrets and fears and insecurities and vulnerabilities for everyone to see. And I was a little bit mortified. And yet what I have found is people come to me like i already shared first i already already shared my hard thing first so they come to me immediately ready to share and we jump into the richest best part of a relationship and friendship where we're connecting on a much deeper level right off the bat i never expected something like that to happen and yet it specifically has been one of the things that's increased my quality of life and like what you're talking about connectedness with other people well
2: just to piggyback on what you said which was perfect. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he's the author who is most famous for the Narnia series. He said that friendship is born at that moment when one person says to the other, what, you two, I, I thought I was the only one. And that's really where connection happens. Connection doesn't happen because we've obtained some level of status or that the outcomes we've, that society has established for us as human beings have been met. Real connection happens when you can look at another human being and instead of judging them for their weaknesses, instead look at them and say, me too. In fact, I tell my patients that the two most important words in the English language are me too, that all of us have vulnerabilities, all of us struggle with things in life, all of us are living what I affectionately refer to as the curvy line, and that sometimes in life we have incredibly amazing experiences, but other times... We also have experiences that are challenging and are difficult, but that those experiences aren't weaknesses, those are our Me Too moments that allow us to connect with other individuals and other human beings.
1: Mm -hmm. I think when you say Me Too, the the power of that, it's the lacking of judgment. You know, it's almost like the opposite of judging. Because when you're judging, it's kind of like you're looking down on someone you're else. You're
0: separating yourself, saying, right. oh, not me, but you.
1: Oh, I didn't realize. And there's this distance. And then Me Too is like the opposite of that, where you're, there's no judging. You're like, I get it. You know, I mean, this is we're dealing with the same things. And and that is powerful.
2: Yeah, and Adam, I would just add to that, that what's really interesting when you dive into this research into connectedness And you really start to look at what it means to have self-worth or that elusive concept of self-esteem that we talk about. The connection-based research seems to suggest that that level of self-worth comes not from living an outcome-based life, but it comes from simply being able to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. By allowing yourself to be, as Dr. Brown likes to talk, or the phrase that she coined, being deeply seen and heard. And that's powerful. instead of looking at my life and this and some of the challenges that I've had as as something that I want to hide instead I can see it as a vulnerability as a me too moment that creates connection for me. Mm-hmm. If maybe I can get just a little bit personal, you know, I grew up in Meridian, Idaho, this small little community just outside of Boise and, and my family was pretty poor. Um, they uh, my dad taught uh, religion classes for our church. And at the time, the our church didn't pay a whole lot for religion teachers. And so there were seven of us kids, and we really didn't necessarily have a lot of money. Um, and I remember growing up poor and some of the effects that it had on me as a child. And in particular, I remember one day I was in my room, um, and uh, my sister was having a party, and I I was probably about nine years old, and I walked out of my room and and I saw on a table all of these things that traditionally my family never bought: Oreo cookies, soda, <laughs> you know, chips. You know, we 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 canned, We had canned fruit. My mom made bread, and and uh, I remember seeing all those things and just staring at them. And this neighbor, who was about 15 or 16 years of age, who was at the party, looked at me and said what are you doing out of your room? You just want our food. And I remember this overwhelming feeling of shame just coming over me that she was right. I did want it, but just at that young age having that recognition that I was poor and I couldn't get it. And that, you would think like, well, that's not really that intense of a moment, but it was for me and it defined me for the longest time because when I started growing up i told myself i will never ever take a handout from anyone i will never ever stand in line for free food my kids used to laugh at me when i would go to costco because you know they'd be like dad let's go and try the samples (laughs) (laughs) it's hard for (laughs) life it's a handout i'm not taking their (laughs) handouts but that experience used to be something at least growing up that always felt shameful to me but what i've seen as i've grown older is instead of being poor, being a shameful experience that what it actually did for me was allowed me to be more understanding, more thoughtful, maybe perhaps just a little bit more caring that when other people are struggling instead of pointing the finger at them and saying, I can't believe they're doing it that way. you know, Maybe there's some unseen trauma or difficulty from their life that I can't anticipate and because I know how my trauma affected me or at least growing up poor affected me, it allows me to give them the benefit of the doubt, to be a little bit more loving and hopefully a little bit less judgmental.
0: You know, that's interesting that you say, because I feel like we, we talked about this in an episode in the past, how I don't necessarily have the same hard thing as other people, just like, you know, we have different hard things, but just the fact that we've both gone through hard things helps us to connect in that way, not be judgmental, to recognize, like you said, trauma or reasons that other people have for doing things or acting certain ways, like we can just connect over the fact that I understand difficult things just like you understand difficult things. And like that's what helps us bond and move forward in a friendship and also be less judgmental in life, which is what mental illness has really done for me. Yeah. And, that, and that's
2: that's really the secret in all of this. When you know, when you're thriving with mental illness, mental illness isn't uh, some significant weakness. It's your me too moment it's that opportunity to have a connection not only with yourself and recognizing that you're enough and that you don't have to live a fitting in or an outcome-based life, but it also allows you, when you really understand your mental illness, it allows you to look at other people with that level of compassion and understanding that all of us need. When we see somebody struggling, rather than you know doing the Monday morning quarterback thing that all of us, are good at and think well I obviously wouldn't parent that way or I wouldn't have made that decision or I you know would have stayed away from from that party where those difficult things happen instead we're more likely to say no I get it you know I have my own scars my own challenges my own struggles and those not don't make me less than they make me who I am and it allows me to better able to connect with other people.
1: We talked about that a little bit too uh, parenting you know you talk about being judgmental and we talked about you know when max was growing up and he was our first and we just thought we had parenting figured out because he likes school and he he you know we didn't really have to micromanages homework and He was
0: easy. He was like parenting 1.0. By the time we hit the other kids, we were like, oh, we're at a 5.0. We had no idea what we were so doing. We, we were lucky a, to make it out alive.
1: We could have written a book on parenting, you know, early <laughs> like when on when we thought
0: we knew. And now,
1: there, we would not dare to write <laughs> such a book cuz you just realize the more life experience you get, the more you realize life is complicated and everybody is doing the best they can right. under the circumstances that they're given. And and most of the time we just don't understand what those circumstances are.
2: Yeah, and if we could even flip that just a little bit to understand that are those moments that the world would see as failures that those are actually our most precious, valuable moments. Those aren't the oh my you know oh my gosh the bucks are horrible terrible parents. As you start to talk about your challenges with your children, it allows you to be able then to connect with me because while I may not know exactly what it was like to be a parent. I definitely know, you know, with one of our children, you know, how difficult it was for me when, you know, I was brought up in such a conservative household that I kind of had this idea of of how life should progress. Um, And so when my oldest son, for example, decided to pursue college baseball, you know, most people would think of that as like, wow, that's an incredible experience, right? What an amazing opportunity he has. But in our culture as uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, when an adolescent reaches the age of 18, the expectation is that they serve a mission. And when he decided, you know what, I'm going to go play college baseball rather than serving a mission, yeah, as a parent, you start to panic a little bit. At least I did. And, you know, I would love to say I responded with a ton of compassion and, understanding, but I think I probably resorted to guilt and shame to try to get him back onto a fitting in line that I felt like mm-hmm. was going to be best for him. And, and it was just interesting because I, I really do credit him and his courage um, in choosing to go play baseball when there was a ton of pressure on him mm-hmm. to serve a mission for our church to really force me to look at myself and say, How do I really want to connect with my kids? Do I want to connect with my kids because they get straight A's, because they're great athletes, because they're seemingly perfect in church? Or do I want to connect with my kids because their kids feel like their dad is a safe place to talk about, hey, I know the world wants me to do it this way, but I think I want to go down a different path? Or Mm -hmm. am I a safe place for them to be able to come and talk to me about their challenges and their struggles and those places where they don't necessarily quite fit in and I would say as a parent, probably I wasn't that safe place necessarily early on. But I'm trying to get there for sure.
0: Well, and that's been something, too. Like, we we had Sam on. We talked about how bumpy it was with us for a little while. But yet the things that Sam taught me as a person and as a parent are things that have have increased by far the the person that I am, the care that I have, the compassion that I can show because I learned it from him, you know. Mm-hmm. And now, like, how lucky am I to have had that experience with Sam and Ella? Definitely benefited from from the things we learned with Sam as well. And hopefully, you know, everyone we come in contact with, because now I'm a changed person for the better.
2: Yeah, I think a hundred percent. Because, and I can relate to that in the sense that with our oldest child, um, when he decided to pursue a different Path. Um, what that taught me was that you know this concept of what we call daring greatly, which is what we really want for our kids. You know, Dr. Brown talks about this idea. She she quotes this, um, and I'll probably butcher this, although I have somewhat of it memorized. She quotes this talk from President Theodore Roosevelt when he gave a speech called "The Man in the Arena," and. President Roosevelt said something along the lines. He said, "It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points where the points out where the wise man stumbled, or where the doer of deeds could have done them different. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena." And I looked at that with my oldest child, and I realized, yeah, you, know, maybe he's not pursuing his life exactly the way I would have wanted him to, so that I could potentially fit in in my church. But he's daring greatly. He's in the arena, and he's living life, and he's choosing a path for himself that is filled with experiences and will be filled with incredible highs, I'm sure, and some challenging struggles. But what I want for my kids more than anything is not to fear life, but to realize that the real game is in the arena of life. That mm-hmm. it, that those of us who seemingly sit in the stands and point out where you know, the doer of deeds or where the wise man could have done them better you know it's us who are disconnected the real connected people who are in the arena and are daring greatly and that's what i love about your kids is that they're thriving not because their life is perfect but because they're learning how to dare greatly which you know if we can even share a little bit about ella just walking in here right she's <laughs> leaving in two days mm-hmm. to go on an amazing journey to utah right she And that's an awesome experience at age 17 where she's going to dare greatly in Utah in a place that's away from her parents with new experiences and everything. I think it's fantastic.
1: Well, and we've we've talked about, um, you know, sometimes we have expectations. And you brought this up. You know, as parents, I think we always have the path that we want for our children. And I, I think that the thing that my children have taught me is that that doesn't matter? You know, it's not about me and what my expectations or what my path to success looks like. Um, and I think with mental illness, the 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 tie-in is that a lot of times adjustments have to be made, just because life is a little bit different when when they're experiencing, especially before things have stabilized. You know, it can get really messy. And if you think it has to go a certain way, then it can create a lot of conflict between, you know, parents and children. You have
0: to be okay with things looking like a hot mess from the outside. I mean, when we were working through, when I was working through my own personal uh, journey with mental illness, when we were working through it with, with Sam in particular, it, like it looked really ugly, but we couldn't worry about it. I mean, we really just had to worry about, okay, how are we doing? How is Sam doing? How am I doing? And like, that's what we had to focus on. We couldn't worry about what it looked like from the outside. And I think it's important, you know, you talk about not worrying about, you know, we want to fit in, but in some ways, like we have to just, we can't worry about it. We have to take care of number one, making sure we're doing the things we need to be healthy and strong and happy and and supportive and loving to each other. So, you know, it looked ugly with Sam, but now I look at where he's at right now and he would never be at this amazing place he's at right now if we hadn't gone through the ugly part.
2: Yeah. I think one of the th- the hardest thing for for parents and f- and individuals that um, are watching a loved one or a child who m- maybe has depression or anxiety or other or some other form of of um, mental illness is I think the hardest thing is to remove shame from the equation mm-hmm. and shame is the emotion that it shows up it says not enough and I think parents feel like. It can feel like when you have a child who maybe is working through depression or anxiety, it can oftentimes feel like, well, I'm not a good enough parent. Or that child who's struggling with depression, feeling like, you know, there's something wrong with me. Why am I not enough? And once you remove shame from the equation, right, and shame is that emotion oftentimes that pulls us back towards fitting in and wanting life to be perfect. Once you remove shame from the equation, then you can really see it for what it really is, which oftentimes it is a hot mess, like you talked about. But it's not a hot mess because there's something wrong with you no. or something wrong with, you know. It's a hot mess just because that's what life is sometimes. And, and as you learn to love and work your way through that hot mess without feeling like somehow or another you're less than, um, yeah, it's a lot easier to work through when you feel like I'm enough. And it's okay to be me, and it's okay for our family to be who we are. Sure, we don't look like the, you know, the, the other family down the street or maybe the family that you see at church or, or the family that gets posted on Instagram or, or Snapchat or whatever, but your family is enough. And I tell my, cl- my patients this every time. I say, your self-worth is not determined by what you do it's determined by who you are and who you are was already established as being enough the moment you were born there is nothing you have to do to prove that you're enough you just simply need to be you and who you are is always enough and then from that foundation of self-love if there are things in your life that you want to understand that you want to improve that you want to do a little bit different experiences that you want to Have in life in a different way, it's so much easier to jump from that foundation of I'm enough than to jump from the foundation of I will be enough when I feel less depressed or when I feel less anxious or when my life is seemingly more like what's posted out there on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or wherever it is.
0: I know for me, like when I had my big crush, when I had my suicide attempt those years ago, coming to that realization that... It didn't matter if I never did a single thing like I was fine just the way I was like I was good enough just the way I was I was a good enough mom I was a good enough person and you know that comes a lot because I was on the couch in my pajamas with bedhead you know for a long time but yet (laughs) after that I felt like I was good enough and it changed it changed everything it's it's made. I talk about just really how mental illness has has made my life so much better. It's specifically the thing that's changed everything in the very best way possible.
2: Yeah,
1: go ahead. Oh, I think, you know, talking about that, a lot of times we think that our value is from the things that we do or accomplish for other people. And I think, and I know for a fact, as we've talked through it, there was a time where you felt like, You know, maybe the kids would be better off. Maybe I would be better off with a different wife, with a different mother. Because certain things weren't being done. And the hardest thing as we communicated was to help Mikael realize it's just her. You can't replace... I mean, you can hire a nanny. You can hire people to do things. But you can't hire someone to replace what that individual brings and whether it's a wife or a child or a friend or people are just unique in in just who they are and what they bring. And I think that's what you're talking about is you know you're just good enough because you're you and you bring you to the table. (laughs) It's not that you get straight A's. It's not that you're the all-star on the baseball team. It's not that you make bread and that you can and you know some people are great at that it sounds like your parents were awesome at that <laughs> we're, that's not one we're of we're not so great at that yeah. but
2: that's okay <laughs> Adam you bring up such a good point I want to just kind of add just a little bit to something that you said you know one of these things that happens that's so magical I think about uh, therapy is this idea of of what vulnerability really means. So because I'm enough, the idea is when I can allow myself to be deeply seen and heard, I'm giving you an opportunity to enter into my world. Not to come into my world to change it or to rearrange the furniture so it looks and feels the same way you like it, but to come into my world in a vulnerable way and to see it from my perspective. And when you allow yourself to do that and enter into my world, a deep connection forms. Not because of what I've done in my life, but because I'm being vulnerable enough to share myself with you. And then similarly, when someone else is able to do that, or when you're able to do that with me and I'm able to enter into your world, a a real deep spiritual and emotional bond forms Mm -hmm. between two people. So it's not... You know, all of the things I've accomplished in my life, it's that I get to see you or Mikkel or, you know, your children. I get to see them in a very deep and profound way. And then that connection forms. It's not because they're out necessarily serving me or because they've dropped off a gift or they've done some of the other Mm -hmm. things that maybe we think creates connection. It's because they've given me the ultimate gift, which is to allow me to see inside of who they really are and what it really means to be themselves. And that's powerful stuff. Mm -hmm.
1: I want to just hit on something briefly. You know, you talk about fitting in, and there are certain groups that have a harder time feeling um, connected or feeling like they're, they're welcome or they're part of the group. And I guess it depends on which groups we're in. But there's always people that are somewhat marginalized mm-hmm. wherever we are, um, and the fascinating thing is it just depends on your group which ones are marginalized. But whatever group we're in, there's always people on the outskirts um, that I think are more vulnerable to feeling disconnected. And I don't know, can you talk a little bit about what you've seen and experienced and, and the challenges that that brings?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. and the. The first thing that I would say to that is, I, I touched on this just a little bit earlier, I think because there is such a unfortunate negative stigma around mental illness in our culture uh, that sometimes people, when they start to struggle with maybe depression, and even when I use that word struggle, part of my brain just starts lighting up because that's not really the word I want to use because struggle implies, again, that somehow or another that's a weakness. But I would say as people start to experience depression in their lives, it can be so debilitating because it can feel like they're so alone. Or if they talk about it, that other people will view them as being weak. Because our culture really, our fitting in culture that we live in, really is a culture of doing things, of accomplishing things. And that when you accomplish something, you are then acknowledged as being amazing for it, whether it's with ribbons or trophies or more money or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think definitely because we struggle as a society being able to have really me-too conversations around uh, mental health, around depression, anxiety, bipolar, or whatever it might be, uh, that people do feel marginalized, um, and they feel like they're not enough. And I will tell you to be quite honest, the number one emotion that creates the most difficulty when as a therapist for me is absolutely shame Mm -hmm. you know I've seen sadness because of a loss of a relationship show up I can work with that person to help them work through that relationship and to be able to have a life worth living you know having lost a relationship or maybe having lost a loved one But it's really hard for me to work through sadness when the person believes that the result of that relationship was because they as a person are not enough, Mm -hmm. or that the reason why that relationship broke up is because they're not worthy of love and connection and belonging. That's incredibly painful, and that's another level that takes sadness and almost is the cesspool in which sadness thrives and turns into really difficult and painful things for people to have to work through. Mm. If there was just one simple thing that I would say to kind of to help people um, understand would be to avoid shame at all costs, uh, to really be careful of the messages that we send to ourselves and to other people that they aren't worthy of love, belonging, connection, because it's just not true mental health-related issues or mental illness is not something that makes you less than. Mm. It's something that makes you who you are. And eventually it's going to be something that's going to allow you to connect more deeply and in a more loving way with people around you. But yeah, it can be painful when you're in the midst of this and the society in general looks at mental illness as something that you should just be able to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and try a little harder and just wake up in the morning and jump out of bed and do stuff and choose to be happy, choose to be happy, (laughs) trivialize it instead of saying perhaps the two most powerful words, which is me too. All of us know what it feels like to be sad. All of us know what it feels like to have fear. All of us know what it feels like to be disconnected and experience shame or guilt or anger. We all know that intuitively. But we're so quick to judge people when that shame or when that sadness goes into depression or when that fear starts to go into an anxiety disorder as though we have no ability as human beings to be able to comprehend what that feels like. We know. We all know. And we just need to pause and take a step back and be more willing to say, me too, and get in touch with our moments of shame or our moments of sadness, our moments of guilt and fear. And then it creates an environment in which people can connect. And when people, when we get rid of shame, now people can begin to thrive. Now people can begin to work through how to learn to love their emotions instead of having, you know, a hate relationship with feelings of fear and sadness and guilt and shame and those types of things.
1: So would you, I know this might be hard, but do you think shame is, comes from within Internal or external, or a combination of both factors?
2: Yeah, well, definitely shame is internalized, right? So, shame is the feeling like I'm not enough. You know, we oftentimes misunderstand the role that guilt and shame play in our lives. Guilt is I've made a mistake, and certainly we all have standards or levels that we want to achieve for ourselves. So, for example, You know, as a parent, certainly I want to have open and positive communication, but sometimes I may lose my temper or sometimes I may yell or get upset at my children or not, try to connect with them in the way that they need, and guilt will show up because, you know, and guilt can be a very helpful emotion to get us back to where we necessarily want to be. Guilt might inspire me to reach out and apologize and to talk about my behavior and try to make amends for what I did was wrong. So if guilt is, I made a mistake, shame is so destructive because it says, I am a mistake. And that's where it becomes hugely problematic. That's when I start to internalize that the things that are happening in my life aren't just the curvy line of life where you have ups and downs. The things are happening because there's something fundamentally wrong with who I am. And that because of that fundamental difficulty that I have, it makes me not worthy of connection, not worthy of belonging. And that becomes really, really problematic.
1: And I think from just my experience, I think those that um, experience mental illness have a tendency to be really hard on themselves Mm -hmm. and really view their weaknesses and amplify their mistakes or their weaknesses, maybe more so than other people. Um, But what, what advice do you think you could give those loved ones, the friends, the family that are seeing their, their loved one, their friend, their spouse struggling. What can we do to help, help them feel like they're enough, help them feel like they're, they're, they're good enough. And, and, and I know it's a, it's a struggle, um, but you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, two words, uh, two words for those parents or friends or, or loved ones. And those two words are me too. In the sense that when an individual is struggling with depression or anxiety or or, or bipolar disorder, we all have those moments in our lives where we have felt some level of struggle, of challenge, of weakness, or whatever it might be. And, And more often what people need to hear instead of this is how you gotta fix it, or this is how you gotta do it better, they just need to simply hear um, me too. You know, uh, getting just a little bit personal, um, you know, my, my oldest brother, he's, he's an executive at Amazon. He's super successful. Um, we always joke around, you know, that he makes more money than the, all the rest of us combined. <laughs> you know, he gets to hang out with, uh, you know, with Bezos and that whole thing in Seattle. My next two sisters were valedictorians at their high school, and valedictorians, and um, they're at their college. And my brother's a professor at North Carolina State University. He's the one of the country's foremost experts on turkey vaccinations. I know most <laughs> of us are thinking, "How's that even a thing?" But it is a thing. And then came child number five, which was me. You know, I hated school, and uh, my brothers were Eagle Scouts at age thirteen. I hated scouts. Um, you know, when I would show up to class, I think teachers had the impression, like, here comes another one of the Beckstead kids. And I wasn't super interested in that. Um, I was interested in sports. And I just remember as a young child, I remember my cousin coming to visit me from Nebraska and we were, he was telling me about some of, you know, tell me about his family and some of the challenges that he had in his family. And I remember him saying to me, so who's the black sheep of your family? And I remember pausing for a second and thinking about that. I remember saying, well, I think it's me. Because I honestly felt like I was the black sheep of the family because I didn't necessarily fit in. So I think if I were to say, you know, what family members can do is instead of trying to fix the person, really try hard to get in touch with your own Me Too moments. You know, those moments in your life where you didn't quite feel like you were enough. And as you start to share those experiences, they can be powerful. I, when I go around and I talk about connection, one of the things that parents will often bring up to me, they'll say, they'll say Joel, I'm afraid that if I share my Me Too moments with my children, that it's going to be encouraging them to do things that I don't <laughs> want them to do. You know, that they'll be like, well, mom did that or dad did that, you know, so that means that I can do that and that they'll use it as ammunition against me. Like, well, mom, you can't get mad at me because, you know, you were doing that in high school. Can I just simply dispel that notion that that is totally not true? I have never, ever had an experience in my over 20 years of being a therapist that when a parent has opened up in a Me Too moment that a child has used that as ammunition. What I have seen is that I've seen a child for the first time in many instances feel like, you know what, I'm enough because mom or dad or whoever the loved one is understands me. And maybe they don't understand perfectly what it is I'm going through, but at least they understand the emotion or understand that sometimes life isn't necessarily perfect or fitting in. So yeah, me too. Being able to share those experiences. um, I'll just add one other thing to it, my, you know, hopefully... Um, my uh, middle child won't be listening to this podcast (laughs) when he just a couple of years ago he he wanted a Mustang and he pulled me aside and he said dad I found this Mustang we should get it and it was a yellow Mustang old school I think in the 60's I can't remember what year it was it was a beautiful car and I said I said to him, I said, yeah. I said, that's awesome. We should get that. But here's the thing, if we get that, we're going to have to pull money out of your college fund because we set aside a certain amount of money for you to be able to go to college. And he said, well, you got a car for you know, his older brother when he went to college. And I said, yeah, we did. But you know, he had a baseball scholarship and an academic scholarship. So his school was all paid for. And then I could just see him think about it for just a second. And then he said to me, he said, you know, Dad, I just totally feel like shit. And I said, I said why? He said, because Seth has his school paid for. And Morgan, our younger daughter, you know, is a, an accomplished pianist. And he goes, she will have her school paid for. He goes, I'm the only one who won't. And you know that story that I just got, telling, got done telling about my older siblings? That's what I told them. Rather than telling him, hey, Adam, you need to try a little bit harder in school or you need to study a little bit more and you can have all these things over here. I just said, hey, buddy, this was my experience growing up. Me, too. Right. And that's what people need to hear. We all know what it's like. We just got to get out of this this Instagram, Snapchat, Mm -hmm. Facebook, you know, where our lives are seemingly perfect, perfect and get into what it really means to be us as individuals and how to share those experiences with our children. You know, because certainly, you know, using my middle child, certainly I'm sure at that time, maybe there was some sadness there. Maybe even that sadness was a little bit of depression or certainly some anxiety about his future. And I was grateful that the thought that came into my head was to share those experiences rather than to shame him into trying to be like his older brother or be like his younger sister.
1: You know, what? oh, Go ahead. <laughs> I'm gonna say, you know, I have a personal experience with this because um, one day Ella came home
0: after meeting with her best friend, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> after,
1: and she wanted to talk to me about, I can't remember how she phrased it, but she wanted to know something like really, really difficult or a failure I had or. Something along those lines and she wanted to go and you know go into a separate room and I was like wow this is what's going on here and <laughs> and she just wanted to sit in and, and Hear because she was going through some hard things and her perception of me was that I'd never experienced any hard things, you know, and I think as maybe especially as a dad you 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 want your kids to feel like things are stable you have things under control it's it's fine you want to be the rock you know you want to make sure that they know that that you got this and so I don't know if intentionally or otherwise but a lot of things I didn't share with the kids and and I remember thinking in the moment as she's asking me face to face um, to share a failure of that I had in life I remember thinking about it and then I remember opening up and sharing something that I hadn't shared with very many people and probably my worst failure in life. You know, nobody likes to talk about those things. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to her about it and she was just, um, it was comforting to her, which I thought it would be distressing, but it, it, you're, you're exactly right. It created a connection and instead of her feeling like, Oh no, maybe my dad's not perfect but maybe I'm a lot like my dad, which is, is different. And, and I think parents, we, we don't understand the importance of what you're talking about, me too. We just wanna be the leader. We wanna show them that we're successful and that we have it. And sometimes that can be the, the wrong thing.
2: If I had one piece of advice for, not only for people who have mental illness, but also for the loved ones who are a part of their lives, I would just simply go back to simply reiterating that the most powerful thing we have as human beings isn't what we've accomplished, or isn't the, the things that we have, or the, the you know the cars and the houses and the other things that seemingly make us feel like life is okay. This the most valuable thing you have are your me too moments. There is nothing more valuable than those, and those me too moments were born out of moments of oftentimes intense shame, intense sadness, intense anxiety, fear, um, anger, guilt. Those moments are your most precious. And when you can open those moments up and in the right situations and in vulnerable times, share those with people, you will find incredible connections that will form. You will find that it will facilitate and make it easier way for people to be able to discover what they need to do in order to thrive with mental illness. You'll create an environment of love and connection. Mm -hmm. And that will happen not because of being a perfect parent but because you yourself had incredible Me Too moments Mm -hmm. throughout your life. And so that would be, I hope, the message that gets out there to people that were, were all enough And it's okay to be us. It's okay to be me. And those struggles I had as a child that that I dealt with and even different struggles I had growing up through adulthood don't make me less than. They make me who I am and they make me better able to connect with other people. They make me a better psychologist. Hopefully they make me a better husband and a better father. But most importantly, they help me to love myself. And I think there are fewer, more important things in this life than being able to truly love yourself in that way. Mm-hmm.
0: I've seen that with our kids. You've, you've been meeting with our kids for quite some time now. And the personal growth that I've seen in them, the confidence that I've seen in them, their, their comfort level with themselves and the way they feel about themselves, it's, it's been an amazing transformation to watch and we're just so appreciative of the knowledge that you shared with them and what you've done for them and consequently for our family. So thank you so much for everything that you've done and everything you shared today. We sure have had fun having you and uh, thank you for joining us. If you like the podcast, rate it and share it with a friend. If you have topics that you're wondering about that you'd like to be addressed, you can submit them on Instagram at Thriving with Mental Illness. Or on Facebook, Mikkel Buck. And remember, there are no topics that are off limits and no questions that aren't okay to ask. Thanks so much for being here, and we'll see you next time.
1: See you next time.